This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to Elders past and present and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and that colonisation and dispossession are both ongoing processes. This episode of the ERRR podcast is brought to you by John Cat Educational and this month we're highlighting Power Up Your Pedagogy, the illustrated handbook of teaching by Bruce Robertson and Fanola Wilson. Covering a broad range of themes from professional learning and coaching to cognitive science and educational research, this book is comprehensive in its scope. It covers the exposition of content, feedback, differentiation, and behavior management, each in a concise format with clear and helpful sketch notes to accompany. The two glowing forewords, one by Tom Sherrington and one by Rob Coe, demonstrate that this book has done a great job of packing a whole heap of really important educational ideas into a small and easily digestible packet for teachers and school leaders. With a special code ERRR30, you can get 30% off all books via the John Cat website. That includes Power Up Your Pedagogy, as well as my two books, Cognitive Load Theory in Action and Tools for Teachers. Again, that code for 30% off is ERRR30 on the John Cat website and also on the Woods Lane website for our Australian listeners. This episode of the ERRR podcast is also brought to you by Catalyst, a project pioneered by Catholic education in the Archdiocese of Canberra and Goulburn. Catalyst is an evidence-based educational project that's working directly in schools and with teachers across the ACT and parts of New South Wales. Catalyst has its genesis in this podcast and is a structured and strategic approach to bringing the science of reading and the science of learning to life in more than a thousand classrooms. It's drawing on both local and international expertise, including several guests from the ERRR podcast, to realise a bold vision of transforming students' lives through learning by developing excellent teachers and leaders. If you'd like to find out more about opportunities at the Catalyst Project and Catholic Education in Canberra, including their professional development that they're running, the way that they're engaging Australian and world leaders in evidence-based education, and to even explore employment opportunities, just click on the Catalyst logo or follow the link in the show notes. What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 77 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Molly Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. This episode we're speaking with Ben Jensen. Ben founded his education advisory, Learning First, in 2014. He's advised numerous education systems in Australia and in several countries around the world on education strategy and implementation and school and system reform that continuously improves teaching and learning. His advice had covered school improvement, teacher and leader development, curriculum reform and data evaluation and accountability systems. Ben's publications include Preparing to Lead, Beyond PD, and Not So Elementary, all of which have received international attention and changed policy in a number of systems. Ben has been a member of the Victorian Minister's Expert Advisory Group, the New South Wales Education Statistics and Evaluation Advisory Committee, the Independent Schools Queensland Leadership Advisory Group, and the Education Committee of the Meyer Foundation. He served on the Australian Government Teacher Education Ministerial Advisory Group and on OECD expert groups for both PISA and the Teaching and Learning International Survey, TALIS. 
Before founding Learning First, Ben was Director of School Education Program at the Grattan Institute, Australia's leading independent policy think tank, where he wrote the influential report, Catching Up, learning from the best school systems in East Asia. He also spent five years at the OECD, where he conducted international research on education policy and school and teacher effectiveness. Ben has a PhD in economics from the University of Melbourne. He's an analyst of the highest degree, and I know that you're going to absolutely love this episode in which Ben shares his extensive knowledge about the crucial importance of quality curriculum. If you're keen for a weekly injection of educational insight, stimulation, and resources, then why not sign up to my weekly education email? Each week I share with subscribers all of the juiciest educational tidbits that I've collected over the week, wrapped up in one easy to digest and a short email message. Join thousands of other teachers across the world and stay up to date with the most important ideas in education with this Friday afternoon message. To sign up, go to ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe. That's ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe. Now, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 77 of the ERRR podcast with Ben Jensen. Ben Jensen, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Thanks very much. Great to be here. Ben, first question, it's a big one. Why does a knowledge-rich curriculum matter? Okay, so we'll start with the easy stuff. I'll probably take a step back and say that I never started out in education as a curriculum person or as a, or as a desire to really head down a curriculum road. I really focused on school improvement, teacher development and these sorts of things, which was where the big push, you know, many moons ago was. And what I found in system after system around Australia and in many systems overseas was that curriculum, curriculum implementation, curriculum understanding and, you know, curriculum problems were basically preventing improvement in schools and systems around Australia and in a number of other countries we worked in. And at the same time, we'd done a lot of work looking at school improvement, teacher development, teacher education programs in high-performing systems. So, you know, Singapore, Finland, the usual Ontario, the usual suspects. And what I had underestimated and to some extent just plainly got wrong when that analysis around teacher development and school improvement and system improvement was just the role of curriculum and curriculum supports in those systems. And to be honest, if I'm really critical of our work, the difference between the Australian curriculum and curriculum implementation policies and other systems. So, so that, that is what led us to focus on the past five, six, seven plus years, well, I see it's longer now, on these issues about curriculum and curriculum implementation. So, so, so that's what led us to this. Now, therefore, at the similar time, if you look over the past 10, 15 years, some of the most important research in education has actually been around curriculum. And I think that was the point of your question, getting to around why does this matter? So what we saw from that is, from that research is, and this is looking at what's the impact of using different curriculum resources in schools. Do you use a low-quality or a high-quality resource? And there we saw some of the biggest effect sizes that were comparable to what we saw in terms of other initiatives and sometimes greater. So, you know, impacts of various initiatives around teacher development, school improvement. We were seeing, the research was showing these large effect sizes of using different curriculum materials. 
And so that evidence and from what we were saying I, has really grown over the past few years. And I, I think it's actually, it highlights that this is actually our big gap in Australian education. That's, that's great, Ben. So to, to kind of try to summarise what you said, I asked, why does a knowledge-rich curriculum matters, matter? And you said, one, you've, you've realised that through your own experience working with, with systems, that it really comes first. And two, there's a whole heap of evidence supporting the importance of curriculum, which I'm really keen to dive into in a moment. I, I, but to start off, I wanted to kind of offer a bit of a reflection on that, which is that it actually really parallels my own experience. I remember probably five or so years ago, I was working with a company here in Melbourne called Ed Rollo, who focuses on curriculum materials for schools. And the founder of Ed Rollo, Duncan Anderson, was talking to me about how he had this vision of like improving teaching in classrooms by improving the curriculum resources. And I was like, that sounds like a good idea, Duncan. But, you know, I'm much more interested in actually empowering teachers to develop their own curriculum resources. So, you know, if the curriculum changes, blah, 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 you know, they're still going to be empowered and they're going to be skilled up. And as I look back on that now, I see that as like somewhat of a romantic view, whereas a more pragmatic and practical approach is actually it's probably both, but it actually needs to start with a curriculum approach. Similarly, I've been doing a bit of work um, with Step Lab recently looking at what does it take to help teachers really improve? And we've been working with that like simple model of memory uh, where it's like there's the environment, you f- put attention on something in the environment, it, it brings something into working memory, et cetera. And talking to Josh Goodrich and Pepsi McRae, we realised that curriculum is actually the first box in that causal chain of learning. It's like what's in the environment that we're getting students to pay attention to. And so 100%, it's what comes first. So thanks for sharing that. And, and it's interesting that our experiences have kind of been been p- paralleled there in, in terms of realising that curriculum has to come first. Building on that, you mentioned the evidence there. And in your recent presentation at Science of Learning Leadership Accelerator run by Knowledge Society in Perth, you talked about two papers in particular. One was by Kirbo Jackson and and colleagues. And one was by, I think, is it Chingos? I'm not sure how you pronounce it, Chingos and Whitehurst. Yeah, yeah. Matthew Chingos and Grover Whitehurst. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about those two papers? Because I think they had some really interesting findings on the importance of curriculum. So the first one um, by Grover Whitehurst and his colleague, Matthew Chingos, yeah, they're from the, Bro- the Brookings Institute. So very well known, high profile, very good at synthesizing the research and bringing it together. And it became one of the most well known research papers around what's the impact of this? What's the impact of different curriculum materials? And again, it's important to realise it's not what's the difference between different national curriculums, it's what's the difference between what's actually taught in a classroom. And so what they were able to look at was, well, A, synthesised the research showing this, this stuff actually has a big effect size, and then they looked at particular selective interventions. Now, obviously, this is hard research to do. Right? It's, not, it's not one of those ones where we can just randomly assign different curriculum materials to schools. It's a hard thing to do. So there's not a lot of, you know, there's not thousands and thousands of studies where we can say, well, what's the difference between this history textbook versus that history textbook? It's a tough stuff to do. So most of this research is in mathematics, as, as in a lot of education research. And what they showed was, particularly in one of their main studies around the use of primary school or in this case in the American sense elementary school mathematics materials that had a bigger effect size than moving basically around getting significant shifts in teacher development 
So if you do it from a purely effect size or quantitative manner, if you're able to shift a teacher from, say, from what they would do from the 50th percentile up to the 75th percentile, that still had a lower effect size than putting better curriculum materials into schools. Now, there's all sorts of issues around using those sort of evaluated metrics and so on. But I don't know any intervention that we've ever had that is able, any PD, and you think about all the money we spend on PD, any school improvement, that is able to take a teacher from the 50th percentile and push them up to 75th percentile. Like that's a massive, massive improvement. And yet that still doesn't bring the impact of replacing a, for crudely speaking, replacing a crap maths textbook with a really good maths textbook and supporting resources. This is actually becomes incredibly important because the crap textbook and the fantastic textbook normally cost the same. So from a system perspective, this is one of those things where they're saying, this has a huge impact. We're not looking at it closely. And that was true in the US. It's true in Australia as well. We still don't know generally what is taught in most schools or classrooms, which is an issue we can talk about later because it is frightening to actually think about that for a second. But what that says is we can actually make massive improvements bigger than we have previously that are pretty much cost neutral, not completely, but can be considered on many respects cost neutral. So that was the Brookings Institute research. It has spawned a huge amount of reform in, I think, a number of systems. Then the, the other paper you mentioned was more of an experimental paper, but sort of dug deeper into some of these actual, you know, some of the reforms, what was the impact and I think what was important to take out of that one is that obviously when we talk about effect size, it's important to realise that it's not a uniform distribution, that obviously curriculum support materials will have different impacts in different schools, different classrooms. And in particular, what that showed is if you took, for example, a, a, um, a less able teacher or, you know, on the, at least on those metrics or a new teacher, or if you took a teacher out of field, and gave them these gave them these sort of higher quality curriculum resources. It had a much bigger impact on student learning than if you did a highly accomplished teacher. Now that intuitively makes sense. It's worth pointing out, but at the same time, it still had an effect on everyone. It just has a slightly more effect on teachers who feel less confident, feeling out of, their, out of their depth and so on. It rings true intuitively. But they were two pieces of research. There's a the whole lot of research out there. This, this field of cur curriculum impact I think is having is, is one of the most interesting and one of the most high growth fields going around at the moment. Fantastic. Coming back to that, that Brookings Institute paper, have you come across any kind of critiques of that? Like what do people usually throw at it or, or do you see it as pretty, some pretty watertight research? Well, look, I think the research is really good. I don't think there's much in terms of critique of the research itself outside of what you would consider the usual around, you know, we're looking standardised test scores, we're looking at growth in performance against particular metrics and so on. The push for well, what that Brookings Institute paper really pushed for was therefore, it was, it was a call to arms. It was saying to systems, we've got to focus on this. We've got to get um, provide more guidance, provide more support, more accountability, and really collect data on what's being taught in schools and classrooms. Now, at one level, it's very hard to argue against that. On another level, I think you mentioned it earlier, there is a, 
a lot of people have a push against something that is historically considered to be the domain of teachers. So is this a system coming in and questioning that professional autonomy of teachers? I struggle with that. I think it's a really, I mean, everyone knows that in a lot of these areas, I I think the notion of autonomy has got really confused and it's confusing overall in education. But the notion that providing guidance and support or curriculum advice to teachers hurts their professional autonomy is something that is raised a lot, but to be honest, is actually just nuts the more you think about it. That's speaking crudely, obviously, but what it's basically saying to me is if you actually pull the argument apart, we're saying that if you if we as an education sector provide the support to teachers that doctors receive, that nurses receive, that lawyers, accountants receive, that every other profession receives, that somehow we're hurting teachers' professional autonomy is bizarre. And from an Australian perspective, but also a US perspective, every high-performing system around the world provides greater curricular support. Every system that, well, no, maybe not every, but you know, virtually every system with high performance and higher equity provides more curricular and instructional guidance to teachers than we do in Australia. And that includes the places like Canada, Finland, Singapore, and others, where people would normally say a high autonomy, high, highliest, where teachers are held in high esteem for their profession and so on. And so I think any sort of, like to be honest, just thinking it through, those criticisms around professional autonomy just fall apart pretty quickly. That's great, Ben. And let's build on this kind of analogy a little bit because I think it's a really important one that you're making and I want it really to, to stick in people's minds. So you're saying that the argument that providing more curriculum support to teachers reduces their professionalism is akin to saying that providing more support to surgeons also reduces their professionalism. If we build on that analogy, like what would curriculum support, what's the equivalent of a curriculum support for a surgeon in their domain? In most professions, the higher you go up in a profession, the more guidance, the more controls, the more um, parameters around what is considered performance or what are the things you have to do. What's the practice you have to follow? If you are a surgeon, it's very, you have very, very tight rules that you have to follow when you're completing a surgery. It's not up to you what you do once you get into the surgical room and there's follow-up design. You know, if things go well or badly, there's follow-up and so on. There are tighter rules around um, what drugs or prescriptions have to be used or have to be followed. Um, With lawyers, there's much greater restrictions around here are the procedures that have to be followed, here's what we have to do with uh, clients and so on and so on and so on. So if you, and the the, um, analogy there for teachers would be, well, okay, if I'm a mathematics teacher, do I choose what curriculum to teach? Or do I say, actually, here's the best in the world, here's guidance on what what research and evidence has shown is the best in the world, it's you know, here's what it is. Now, what's interesting is surgeons probably have even less autonomy because they don't really have a choice around do I follow best practice procedures in this surgery. Um, If they don't follow best practice and what the evidence says, they basically get struck off. But for most systems around the world, they actually don't make it mandatory in terms of here's the textbook you have to teach or here's the text that needs to be taught in year seven English or so on. But there are strong recommendations and information and guidance around what's best. 
what does the research say is best? So a lot of systems will evaluate various curriculum resources and many, many systems are much clearer in and more explicit around here is the knowledge that needs to be taught. Here is, um, you know, here is what the standard is. We're going to be very clear about what this is and so on. Um, that's getting into the detail of the documented curriculum as opposed to the curriculum supports materials. But they're the sort of things which you would look at. And as part of this, all of these things are actually provided in much greater detail in systems where there is, you know, in the Finnish system, Canadian systems and so on and so on, where people would actually say well, there is a lot of professional autonomy. So I think that they're, they're the issues that I think of a lot in this debate. Yeah, it's super interesting because it it is almost a reverse narrative, isn't it? That, you know, the the more guidance we give teachers, the less professional there are is the kind of the trope. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think, I think you're completely right. And for me, an idea that I've been wrestling with is that when we say that teachers should have the – and systems have said for a long time that systems should have the – Australian system has said that teachers should have the autonomy to do this themselves. And they say, well, we're respecting your professional autonomy. In doing that, we have been saying and systems have been saying, I think we don't respect the expertise required in education because what they're saying is to say that teachers do everything, anyone who really understands the expertise required to do everything would never say that one person can do it all. And so I think part of, as you say, there's this reverse way of thinking about it that leaving things up to teachers and saying, yep, you're going to do it all. And there's a lot of discussion now. Grattan Institute's been really good on this around the impact on teacher time. But in saying that we're going to do this under the, under the guise of teacher professional autonomy, we've actually disrespected the expertise required within education overall. And that, you know, if, if I know anyone that can actually has the expertise to do all this at a world-class standard, then they are the best educator probably in the world ever because master teachers in Singapore who have received better PD and recognition than virtually most of us combined, they don't say they can do it all. And yet we've been telling a teacher from in their second year at a uni, you can do it all. It's just a really, really weird way of looking at it. Yeah, it's, 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 pretty, it's pretty crazy. It reminds me of this idea I've been thinking about in relation to providing explicit instruction to students. And I've been developing this idea for, for a few years. Ba- the basic idea is that every student is going to struggle. But as teachers, we have the power to choose the level at which they struggle. Let me explain that a bit more. So if we provide students with no instruction, they will struggle at the level of the most basic questions. However, if we provide them with high quality, explicit instruction in how to do all the basics, they can master the basics quickly, efficiently and easily, and they can struggle at a higher level, the level of maybe more complex problem solving, maybe more collaborative work, maybe more creative work. It's the same here. If we give teachers no curriculum materials, they can struggle slaving away the night before developing five different lessons and rock up with some you know, half-baked curriculum documents uh, and lesson plans and completely no, like all their struggles are going to happen at that, that, that level and it's going to be a complete mess in terms of exactly the, the mechanics of the classroom practice. Or we can provide them with this really solid baseline and let them struggle at the higher level, like what, what, what's their questioning look like? What's their classroom management look like? You know, how are they building on building a culture of, of error in the classroom or developing complex conversations and so on? So it's an interesting parallel that I think 
it's in our power as a system to help teachers to struggle at a higher level. Yeah, I, I completely agree. There's often this narrative that, oh, we understand why new teachers might need help or we understand why young teachers or teachers teaching at a field and so on and so on. And look, I don't disagree with that, right? Teachers in their first couple of years are, you know, God, you know, jump in the deep end sort of stuff. But what's surprising in our data that we've collected across the country is that there is a slight increase in new teachers' desire for supporting this area, but it is across the board. Teachers who have been working 20, 30 plus years say to us again and again, why do I have to reinvent the wheel? Surely this has been done somewhere else. This is just ridiculous. Or more to the point, I've been teaching this for five years. I would love if someone can tell me if I'm doing the right thing, right? It's just, this is really difficult work. And I think the more we actually acknowledge how difficult and complex it is, the better we actually understand what's required to do it. And therefore you get an understanding of the support required for teachers. But I, I think you've, you've highlighted a really good issue that there's actually a real lack of appreciation of how complex these areas are. And I think that gets back to just a lack of appreciation of the expertise required to be an effective teacher, right? I think, I think that's, at, that's at its base. But then when you get into the, the minutiae of this, the idea that, yeah, you know, <laughs> that working all this stuff out isn't actually incredibly complex and difficult, it just doesn't stack up A to any sort of reality, but also doesn't stack up, you know, all the evidence says the opposite. And I think that's one of the things that we are missing. Actually, we're not missing a little bit. We're missing big time in Australia. Yeah, totally. And oh, it was interesting. So what I was, what, The direction I was heading in before is that the trope is, as we've discussed at length now, the more support we give teachers, the less professional they are. But perhaps part of the reason for the current status of teachers in Australia is that we actually don't provide them as much support as what surgeons get so that they can struggle in that high, at that high level and so that it is acknowledged the level of expertise required to be a master of instruction. Let's double click on something else you said earlier, Ben. You said every system that's high performing offers higher curriculum support and guidance than we do. I'm really keen to, for us to look at some examples. So one of the examples you, you talked about at Solar was the example of Alberta. So can you sketch a little bit of a picture for us of what does it look like in Alberta? Like if I were to pick at random something that you might know something about like year three chemistry, what might year three chemistry look like in Alberta? And how does that compare to what the curriculum documents and guidance looks like for teachers in Australia? It's And this is one of those things where it's really interest, it's really important on, on a few levels to realize there's a growing number of systems now where the research shows that the reason they have improved their performance, the reason they have improved equity, well, sorry, one of the key things they've done to achieve this growth is actually implement a knowledge-rich curriculum. And I think, I think this gets back, I didn't answer your previous question properly about when we talk about what a knowledge-rich curriculum is and is not. Because now the thing that's really important, now for some systems, what they do is actually focus on the curriculum support materials. And so we're going to actually provide much more guidance to teachers around what's the support materials, what's a good text to read, you know, at certain year levels, what's the sequence of these things, what are good and bad instructional resources, textbooks, and so on and so on. For Alberta, what's really interesting for us and what I talked about at that presentation in Perth is the difference in the actual curriculum itself. 
So what's the difference between the Australian curriculum and the Alberta curriculum? Now, Alberta, for those of you that don't know, province in Canada, awfully cold, has some similarities to Australia in the sense of we have a lot of inhabitable spaces that are too dry and hot for them, they're too frozen and cold. But it also, what's interesting is both of our curriculums are sort of outliers on, on, if you were to benchmark and compare curriculums in different parts of the world, the Alberta is very specific about the knowledge and explicit about the knowledge to be taught. And Australia, the Australian curriculum is really ambiguous or it leaves a lot of knowledge to be implied and worked out by teachers, right? So this is actually separate from just the support materials. This is the actual curriculum itself. So what we did as an example, and we've done as a sign of how wonderful and exciting my life is, we compare a lot of different curriculums um, to what I'm actually doing this evening. And we actually look at the documentation and the support materials provided. And what you see is that Australian curriculum says, we often have a high level statement, and then it's up to teach, then there's sort of often an optional elaboration, and then it's up to teachers to decide. So. If you want me to get into the weeds, so the year three chemistry content descriptor in the Australian curriculum is investigate the observable, observable properties of solids and liquids and how adding or removing heat energy leads to a change of state. So it's one sentence. So that, that's the extent of like, if you're a teacher in Australia and you're teaching year three, you go to, you're like, I have to teach some science. Oh, I should teach some chemistry. That's the, curric that's the curriculum in year three, that sentence. That's the curriculum. We then have basically five dot points that are optional elaborations. So one of them is observing the properties of substances and classifying them as solids or liquids. Or another one would be using ice cubes, butter or chocolate to explore how changes of state involve the removal of heat or the addition of heat. So, but these are optional elaborations. And one of the questions around this is when you're looking at a curriculum, how do you classify what's optional or not? Like, is optional purely optional as a teacher? Or should, if we're looking at comparisons, how do you compare something that in Alberta is explicit and defined versus, say, in Australia, which is optional? And if you go back to when you said, well, when we think about in a classroom, if, if we said to students, it's optional if you include this in your assignment, your, your project, your essay, your test, that's very different than telling a student, this is actually what you're going to be assessed on and this is what we're going to do. So what's interesting then is when you start to think about well, how does that compare to a place like Alberta that is much more explicit, Alberta has 23 dot points in its chemistry content descriptor. So Australian curriculum has one line, one sentence, sorry. Alberta has 23 dot points, which are basically stating the knowledge that needs to be learnt by students in the year three chemistry. Hit us with it, Ben. Go. Hit us with it. Oh, we'll be going a while. States, so number one, states of matter include solid, liquid, and gas. Matter can change state if heated or cooled. A solid is a state of matter that has a definite shape and volume and so on and so on and so on and so on and so on. And then you start to pull that apart and you go, well, okay, well, what does this mean? And we say, okay, the Australian curriculum says investigate the, okay, observable properties of solids and liquids. And then you say, okay, so as a teacher, I have to work out that. And then in Alberta, if you work through those 20-something dot points, you go that, okay, in that it says solid has a definite shape and volume. 
A liquid has a definite volume but no definite shape. A liquid flows and takes the shape of the container it is in. Volume is the amount of space a solid, liquid or gas takes up. Solids, liquids and gases have definite properties. Describe solid, liquid and gas states of matter in terms of shape and volume. So you can see that there's a vast difference there. Now, some of that is in the optional elaboration of the Australian one, but only two. And what's interesting in all of that is, so it's much more specific and explicit about the knowledge. It doesn't say it's optional. It says, this is what you teach. And it's actually, if you start to think that, you actually think that a liquid flows and takes the shape of the container it's in. Volume is the amount of space. Solids, liquids, and gases have definite properties. Describe the solid in terms of shape and volume. It's very, very um, giving clear direction to teach it. Not only the knowledge that has to be taught, but it's got pedagogical advice in there as well. Right? It's leading, okay, I'm reading that. I'm clearly thinking of experiments that they're doing, they, sorry, they can do, and so on and so on. So that's just one little one little example. Year three chemistry, it's not exactly what people would often think of as the most important or the most the largest part of a curriculum. But that's one example of sort of two extremes. Alberta that has a lot of content that's explicitly defined and Australian curriculum, which to be honest is a real outlier. To me, that actually says a huge amount. And it also, to me, highlights a few things about the problems that we can, can talk about. But it says to me also, we have not spent anywhere near as much time comparing the Australian curriculum to other curriculums overseas. And it gets back to what I said originally when it was through our work where I saw curriculum problems and then I started comparing the Australian curriculum to curriculums in other countries. And I realised these are not small differences, right? We don't have to try and pick, the, is it differences in font size or something like that? These are massive differences throughout the curriculum and we're just not talking about it. And I think that's a massive issue. That's a great point, Ben. And it's really interesting how you've come across it through basically doing that comparison work and, and seeing the difference. It's like it's like when I, when I go to a, a school or last year I went to the, the UK twice and I saw teaching that was so good I didn't even know teaching could be that good. And it's only in seeing these examples of excellence that we realize, wow, the bar's actually much higher than I thought it should be or I thought it could be. Uh, I need to be shooting higher myself. And for Australia, we need to be shooting higher ourselves. I think if I can just hop in there. Yeah, jump on. I mean, it's a really, really important point you make because it gets back to what is the bar, right? What's accepted good practice? What I find, these have been difficult moments but have been really important is when we have shown these curriculums and these curriculum materials to teachers, and I'm not talking about first-year teachers, I'm talking about experienced teachers. So when we showed this science example and we got experienced science teachers with heavy, heavy background in the science industry as well, right, they basically said, I've realised I've been teaching things just not as good as I could in an ineffective way. And for some of them, they've actually found it really difficult and confronting because they say, I just haven't been providing the education I wish I had to my kids, which is really, really confronting for a teacher. But because they see, you know, basically, and they all just say, I wish I had this. And to be honest, it then follows the question, and it's the right question of why don't we have this? This is just wrong. Mm -hmm. 100%. 
And coming back to that bar, just to really emphasize it even more, like something I noticed looking at your comparison is even the language that's used. So in those optional elaborations in the Australian curriculum, for example, it does go into a little bit more about what a liquid is, but it says liquids fill the bottom of containers. Whereas in the Alberta one, it's like a liquid is a state of matter that has a definite volume, but no definite shape. Like the precision and the scientific language of that. If you if you got to compare two year three students, one says, "Oh, I know what a liquid is; it fills the bottom of a container," and the other says, "Oh, yeah, it's a state of matter that has a definite volume but no definite shape." That's like world worlds apart in terms of where those students are going to be able to go in year four, five, six, and beyond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really easy if you're assessing student work, and that's the difference between the two pieces of work, right? Yeah, hundred percent. So we've we've had a thanks so much for that illustrative example, Ben, because I, I think it is such a powerful one, uh, and no doubt it's one that you've used in in many contexts. Let's now zoom out a little bit more because there are a few kind of we talked about some research before, some kind of experiments that were done in in different jurisdictions, but there's actually larger scale kind of natural experiments that I illustrate I think quite powerfully the the impact of curricula. One such example is the example of France, which is one I I touched on with Don Hirsch when I had him on the podcast, but we didn't actually get into as much detail as I would have liked to in that analysis of France. So I'd love to pass the baton from Don to you here, Ben, to give us a bit of a rundown of the changes that happened in France in relation to curriculum uh, and, and what happened as a result. Cool. So this is all nicked from Edie Hirsch's work. Many, oh, I'm sure many of the people who listen to this podcast will know Edie Hirsch. But I think he's the person that really highlighted this and has obviously done so much work in this area. But we saw a massive curriculum shift in France between late 80s, um, well, basically during the 80s, which saw a socialist government come in, uh, socialist in the French field, so, you know, um, the ALP equivalent here, and really... You know, France, and, you know, we lived over there for a long time. It has, it's a very traditional society, has a very traditional education background and so on and so on. You know, the, 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 the classics and the traditions of education are that they are full of texts written by dead white men and the French curriculum was definitely reflected that. <laughs> it, for, for, for all its power and all its faults, it, it definitely was that. And so there was a real push against this and a real desire to say, we've got to update this. And that desire is right, right? They did need to update it. It was old and so on and and just didn't reflect modern French society and didn't reflect, you know, the world that kids need to know. What they did, though, is really go down the skills road. And this is one of those issues that I think has been some of the most important research around why a knowledge-rich curriculum matters and versus a curriculum that is very skills-based and skills-focused. And we can talk about some of the research that shows all the problems with teaching that focus on skills rather than knowledge acquisition. But also what you've highlighted here is we actually had uh, examples around the world that have gone from a knowledge to a skills-based curriculum. And what you saw and what Edie Hirsch had published and others is you saw that when this new curriculum, this new skills-based curriculum was introduced in the late 1980s, what you saw over the following uh, two decades around about was basically a decline in learning across all groups, but you saw a massive increase in inequality because the research is now pretty clear that when you move to a skills-based curriculum and 
you don't have a, an explicit knowledge-based curriculum, what you are basically doing is hurting those students from disadvantaged backgrounds more. So, and the reason for that is quite simple. As we know, wealth, you know, kids from wealthier families, students from wealthier families come to school with more background knowledge, more experiences of the world and so on and so on. And so what we saw was between 87 and 2007, we saw children from professional families. We saw a slight decline in their learning overall in that period. But when you got down to white collar laborers, or sorry, blue collar laborers or families on unemployed, unemployed families or other sort of welfare support, you saw a massive decline in, in their um, performance over time. So you saw a slight decline at the top. You still, you know, it wasn't as if some did better with the skills-based curriculum and others didn't. You saw a slight decline for the for those at the top of the socioeconomic scale. But then you saw with unemployed and labourers in those families, we saw um, children in those families, their performance really drop through the floor where you've got, you know, the gradient is much, much steeper. Um, I really encourage those people to have a look at Edie Hirsch's work on this. You just have to Google it. The data is incredibly stark and it actually, you know, it reflects the research we're seeing on all of the work around knowledge explicit curriculum that this is a huge, huge issue for equity and unfortunately is not part of the equity discussion in Australia either. Mm. Great example, Ben. And so the headline there, folks, is if you want to increase inequality, move away from a knowledge-rich curriculum, which is exactly what France did. I think that's another another really interesting example of, of like countries that took that path, Ben, that you also talked about. And that's a country that's often held up as a paragon of virtue in, in terms of education. Uh, you know, and if you want to find out what good education looks like, go to, drumroll, Finland. So can you actually tell us what's happened in Finland in terms of curriculum changes over the last uh, few, or the last decade or so, and what impact that's had on in their international standings? Yeah, I mean, I mean Finland has been the poster child of education basically since the OECD first released their PISA results in 2000 where they were pretty much up the top. But what's important to note is that since the mid-2000s, uh, so at least this is just looking at the PISA scores, so 2006 PISA scores, we've seen a significant decline in PISA in Finland's performance that is not quite as great as the performance of Australian students over the same period, but is still very large and, and, and not that different. And what's interesting there is, I mean, you've seen the shift. I mean, you know, there's been an enormous amount written about Finland, but you have seen an enormous shift in terms of both the curriculum provider and the discussion around curriculum. So when we first, Finland, you know, prior to this period, some of their work around pedagogical content knowledge and the training of teachers was really backed by a huge amount done around strict guidance and controls around the curriculum materials provided to schools. So when we first, I remember we went to University of Helsinki and we were looking at teacher education there and we spoke to the person, well, the professor at the university who was running primary school teacher training. And she said, basically, you know, it's day one. We hand them the textbook that they're going to teach when they get into primary school and we teach them everything about how to teach that textbook. Right? So their whole teacher training, which let's face it, is Finland is famous for high-quality teacher training. But what people don't talk about is the fact that 
part of the reason they do this is because they used to have these very strict controls about the curriculum being taught, which is therefore very knowledge explicit and rich and so on. They moved away that, moved very much to an autonomy focus, moved very much to a, we don't need to have controls around curriculum, people can decide, and we moved very much to a skills-based focus, that, that, that curriculum and learning is all about a skills focus. Um, my old place of work, the OECD, does a whole lot of work in this area, a whole lot of the work that I think is really poor quality and really low quality. And Andrea Schleicher, my old boss, um, basically finally came out and said that actually the, the Finns have really gone too far on focusing on skills and not enough on knowledge. There's a quote we use basically where he says, Finland has gone overboard. Ideas became ideologies. The country was convinced that we no longer learn in subjects. That, that doesn't, but obviously that doesn't work. Subject matter and knowledge is in fact quite important. Now, Andreas is one of the godfathers of skills and promoting 21st century skills. So for him to come out and really sort of highlight that actually, if you really don't have a knowledge explicit curriculum, you do go off the rails. You know, it's, it's that, that was a lot of people stood up and took notice when he finally said that. Mm. That's a huge message. Dear listeners, if you're finding this discussion stimulating and you'd like to be able to easily refer back to and remember some of the most valuable takeaways from our discussion, why not consider becoming a patron of the ERRR podcast? Patrons are listeners who contribute a monthly donation to support the ongoing production of the show and, in return, receive a summary each month of the key takeaways from the episode. Patrons also receive access to an interactive transcript of each episode, meaning that if you'd like to listen back to a specific part of the episode, you can simply do a word search for a key term, then be taken directly to the spot within the podcast and listen back at the convenient click of a button. This episode's summary will include Ben's insights on what makes a quality curriculum, the key findings from the Brookings Institute paper, and Kirabo Jackson's research on curriculum. Summaries of what we've seen in Finland, France, Estonia and Portugal, a comparison of the science curriculum dot points in Alberta versus Australia, and thoughts about where to from here when it comes to improving Australia's curriculum, plus lots more insights from the second half of this podcast, the remainder of which you'll hear in a moment. At higher tiers, ERRR supporters also have access to a members-only podcast with special insights and episodes that go beyond the standard ERRR. Clip requests of your favourite episode segments and even the opportunity to personally connect with me to discuss teaching and learning. So if you'd like an actionable summary of this episode of the ERRR podcast, to explore the additional benefits such as the members-only podcast, and if you'd like to support the ongoing production of the show, simply go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR and sign up to support the show for as little as the price of a cup of coffee per month. That's patreon.com forward slash ERRR to support the show and help to keep it sustainable for the long term. Now, let's jump straight back into this episode of the ERRR podcast. So we've got two examples of kind of when you shift from knowledge rich to skills based in, in France and also Finland. But over a similar time period, a number of countries have actually done the opposite. One such example is that of Portugal. Would you like to share with us the story of Portugal, Ben? Yeah, so Portugal is one of those ones that really came from nowhere and had, well, didn't come, sorry, came in terms of the international discussion, I think came from nowhere, where during this period we talk about the declines in France, which we, there's been a lot of discussion about the declines in Australia, nine, 12 months reduction in learning over the past couple of decades. But during that time, we've actually seen almost about a year of growth in Portugal. 
And no, to be honest, I don't think partly because Portugal is, you know, a relatively small country, people don't talk about it, perhaps non-English speaking and so on, really wasn't being followed as much. But they were undergoing significant educa- they were education reforms and in particular a rewriting of the curriculum, a focus on detailing an explicit uh, knowledge-based curriculum and very detailed about the knowledge. They prioritised um, core basic knowledge at the start and then also followed a mastering model of here's the knowledge that students have to master as we go forward. We see this a lot in knowledge explicit in curriculums. Um, They had other reforms. Importantly, they also had introduced, and I think this is a really interesting part of it, they also introduced reforms which said we are going to evaluate and basically set a only recommend certain textbooks allowed to be used in schools. And they had um, expert panels set up to evaluate those textbooks and you either got the rubber stamp of approval or you didn't. Also implemented other other reforms around trying to improve teacher education, more assessments and more transparency and so on, which I think would ring up true for a lot of Australia's um, history with our NAPLAN, my school and so on. The big difference, though, of course, is Australia didn't follow what Portugal did in terms of the knowledge explicit curriculum. And we saw some really, really big improvements. So, but, you know, PISA came in 2000, a bit over 20 years ago, and we've seen some declines of nearly up to a year in learning overall in Australia. Uh, Portugal's seen nearly a year growth. I mean, so that's just a massive difference that this sort of change can make. Um, no one can assign direct crime causality to any of these things. These are big, large system studies where we're trying to look at reforms overall and look at the differences. But what we see overall, and you've highlighted this, Ollie, is we have the micro research, which can look at the effect size, and then we look at the policy shifts and what happens after the policy shifts, and we see the same thing coming again and again. So, yeah, Portugal, um, where we're trying to get the minister to come out here, the minister who implemented these reforms, trying to get him out here to speak to people sometime later this year. But, um, yeah, we'll see how we go. Let us know he's coming. I'd love to hear what he's got to say. And just just to round out this piece, Ben, we've got two examples. Um, we've got two non-examples of France and Finland. We've got one example so far, Portugal. Just to round it out, finally, Estonia. What have they done there? Well, Estonia was another one that really um, had a big improvement. And look, you know, my Estonian is not what it should be, I've got to admit. Um, so basically, we're relying on other people's research, but pretty much implemented a knowledge rich curriculum basically was much more and and really much more explicit. And I think this gets back to the point where you are highlighting the the difference between the Alberta curriculum versus the Australian curriculum. Yes, it is, you know, the the knowledge is much more explicit, but it's also much clearer about, well, yes, this is what we teach, this is what we have to do. And so that's where people have really highlighted um, the Estonian curriculum that came in with really detailed descriptions of what should be taught in subjects, assessments for teachers to use, um, a lot more guidance and so on. So it was a real package. It wasn't just the documented, but it was the support materials around that that just basically, for lack of a better word, created a lot more clarity about what we have to teach and assess in schools and classrooms. And Estonia has been one of the biggest improvements in the international assessments going, um, you know, basically for, for a number of years now. So they're another success story. Um, we see this again and again if you look at the history of you can go to Singapore, Hong Kong, Ontario, even with their reforms around numeracy, British Columbia in their first wave of curriculum reforms, um, and Alberta, I mentioned. You can just go through the list. Japanese system as well. We're talking about very highly detailed curriculum reforms. 
And even some of the improvements we're starting to see in the US since Common Core and others came in, you know, when I first entered education, the, we were always used to sneer and look down at the United States as, you know, it's a real, for lack of a better word, it's a really crap education system. Um, and now they're starting to be better than us on some education measures as we sort of slip further and further behind. And obviously, they basically the main thing they did there was around curriculum reforms and, and others that really pushed, you know, their common core changes, um, really pushed a lot of reforms there and also um, improved equity as well. Massive issues still. Can't pretend the US is fantastic, but it's a, it's a shift we're seeing. Um, and, you know, there's a whole lot of international examples, there's a whole lot of micro research as well. That's really interesting because when we were talking about the that headline before, you know, if you want to increase equity, if you want to re- increase equity, reduce knowledge specificity in the curriculum. In the back of my mind, I was thinking about America and how we've seen massive increases in in inequity in recent times, and that's kind of you know precipitated a lot of the conflict that we've seen there in in recent decades and so on. So, is it also the case that US drank the Kool Aid about? kind of teacher autonomy and so on and took quite a liberal approach or should I say quite a free approach to teacher guidance and and then they've kind of started to turn that ship around? Yes and no. I think the thing that will always strike you about US education is that it is, I mean, Australia has different systems across every state. They have thousands of different systems across districts and states and so on. So you'll get massive differences between districts and states they definitely have the same problems we have in terms of guidance and support to teachers being perceived and discussed as reductions in professional autonomy. But they also took a big shift where they introduced a national curriculum, the Common Core, um, which was a bipartisan intervention that was pre-Obama, just before Obama entered. And that basically for the first time ever really gave them this national, you know, national curriculum that had, you know, much more explicit than the Australian curriculum, much more knowledge um, in there than what we have. And then from that, states and other districts are able to develop policies, develop curriculum materials and so on around that. I don't hold this up as the Common Core as the be-all and end-all, but it is another example of how this focus on curriculum reform can actually lead to significant improvements. And I, I think the US is really interesting for two reasons. One is that, you know, when I started out in education, the US was always the basket case that, you know, we, we would laugh at a bit and go, this is just so sad. And the other one is if you can get improvements, you know, there are some places that get improvements in some of the poorest parts of the US. Um, we've done work in Louisiana, you know, down south, down there. If you can get improvements in some of these states um, with some of these school systems, then you know, kudos to you because these are some of the toughest places to get any sort of educational reform through. 100%. And I mean, just a simple example of the benefit of the Common Core is like a website like and charity like Khan Academy can create resources based around the Common Core and any kid in the States with an internet connection that's decent can jump on and drive their own learning. And it's, it's I mean, that's just one example of one of, one of the benefits of something like the Common Core. And it'll, it'll be an interesting story to follow uh, in decades to come. Changing gears a little bit, Ben, I imagine some listeners are listening and, and thinking, oh, this Ben guy seems to know a fair bit about curriculum stuff and it seems like he knows a fair bit about different countries and what's going on. How does he know all this stuff? Ben, what do you actually do? I generally just pontificate on podcasts. <laughs> so when I'm not doing that, 
I run a small organization called Learning First. We're a research and consulting company. We've been up and going for eight or nine years now, I think. We basically consult mainly to state governments and curriculum bodies in Australia. Pre-COVID, we did a lot of work um, internationally, and a lot of our international work was actually funded by organizations like the Gates Foundation, um, National Center on Economy and Education in the United States to look at what's happening in other systems. And we, we basically set up a model where if we look at both the research and international best practice and investigate how do we bring this into Australia or with work with Gates Foundation, how we bring this to the US. So that set up sort of a way of working, which was, yes, obviously we need to know the research, but we really need to understand what other systems do. So hence, when we we're talking about the curriculum example, a big thing for me was, well, we, you know, the research doesn't really say what's the best year three chemistry content descriptor. If you go and Google that or go to a library and try and work that out, that's not going to produce the research about what that is. So let's go and have a look at what 10 or 12 other systems do. And that's how we can get an understanding of what's good, what's bad, what's useful and so on. And so that's been our approach. Prior to that, I was at the Grattan Institute. Um, I was a school education program director there. Um, actually released Grattan's first report many, many moons ago. And prior to that, I was at the OECD working um, in the education director there um, you know, before times in government and uh, academia and all the rest. Mm. What, what do you like about the, the kind of area you work in? I got into education in a backwards way. My passion was always about inequality and, and what can we do as a society to reduce inequality. You know, I started out in economics doing it, doing it like that. And then when I did my PhD, we started to focus much more on educational inequality. And so that was the real focus. And bit by bit, you sort of tended more down the education path. And I think the things I really enjoy around it is, well, over time, it's got to be, you know, this is what I spend far too much of my life thinking about and worrying about. Um, there is something very, very personal about an individual or a child's education that, all people in society, I think, feel um, that educators feel to the nth degree. And But what really interests me is that we've done a lot of things to try and improve national well-being. We've done a lot of things to try and improve inequality. But if we really want to make a difference, education's the lever that is generally considered one of the most important. And for me... It's a lever we haven't pulled successfully. So while I, I, you know, obviously there are schools, teachers and parts of our systems around the country that have been, that are do fantastic things, but we, I think, have to be much more honest and say that we have actually failed on education inequality for decades in this country. I don't know if it's enjoyment that I feel the need to focus on that or if it's actually through frustration and bloody-mindedness that I think this is actually something that we have to do something about. And I've been very, very lucky in my career to work with some amazing people, have the opportunities I've had. So I feel a bit of a, um, a, a responsibility to try and actually therefore take advantage of where I've been lucky to actually make a difference in Australian education. How... Whether or not we're successful at all, you know, I, we'll wait and see. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I'm I'm really encouraged by your work so far, and I think even just bringing this incredibly important message to the masses through this podcast and through all the other avenues you use will hopefully act as a 
as a way to start to push that lever in Australia. To dig a little bit deeper, Ben, where did that passion come from? You said you ca- you didn't come to education because it's education. You came to it through the root of having a passion about addressing inequality. Where, where did that passion come from? I, 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 on, on one level, I don't know. You know, it's the um, – but always grew up interested in these issues. But another thing – so what basically got me going when I started my PhD was – and I have, I'm showing my age now. This is, you know, I was at school in the in the 80s where there was a lot of discussion about ghettos, particularly in cities in the US and to some degree Europe. And my interest, like when I started my PhD is I, I, I want to work out what's the research around how ghettos or really low-income communities form and I wanted to stop that in Australia because basically, according to the data, Australia either had one ghetto or didn't have any back then. Um, we, you know, we didn't have the no-go zones in our cities the way that the US and other things did. So, so that was my driving passion. That was a real area of interest for me about how, you know, what can we do to actually prevent this sort of urban inequality? And then I got into, well, what do we do about the schools in these areas? That's sort of where, where what got me into education. Yeah, got it. Coming back to curriculum, I'm convinced, Ben. You've convinced me. Curriculum is important. Curriculum is king, uh, and we need to do a better job of being explicit in our curriculum in Australia. What's the outlook? How how are we going? What's going to happen? I am pretty pessimistic. I'm so sorry. I have streaks of optimism, but I am pretty pessimistic, and I don't know if that's because I'm an old man now or if it's because. Um, I look at what's happening out there and, and I, I don't think it's very encouraging. So let me unpack that. I am, if, when, when I look at the Australian curriculum and the amount of change required, our way of developing and reforming the national curriculum and to be honest, curriculum overall, doesn't permit the sort of significant improvements or at least in my mind, we are not, I don't foresee much hope of the significant improvements that are required. So let me unpack that a bit. We have a system which is a national consensus and ACARA, the national curriculum body. So basically, we're going to get all states and sectors to agree, all states and territories to agree, sorry. And ACARA operates in a very consensus-driven approach, which basically means for anything to be signed off, We not only have to get the states and territories, but we have to get all the stakeholders and major voices to agree. And I don't, I find it difficult to find places, with the exception of countries like Singapore, which I think we can take as culturally and geographically different to Australia, that it's not the right comparison. But one of the things that when I speak to people who have made real curriculum reforms overseas, one thing stuck with me when a reformer said to me, you've got to have someone or a group of people normally, because it's normally just one person, who are, re- who are prepared to make the tough call. So let's unpack what that means is no curriculum reform is not controversial. Like people say, oh, it's so hard in Australia because curriculum is controversial. Curriculum is controversial everywhere, right? Curriculum is never simple. It's never hard. So to make the reforms, you have to have people who are willing and able to make a tough call that is going to accept a lot of criticism. That is virtually impossible with a national approach that says we will build consensus from the ground up. We will listen to everyone's views 
and create something that we generally all agree on. Because in doing that, you make compromise after compromise after compromise after compromise until that classic thing of now we can, now all stakeholders can see themselves in the national curriculum. It is an approach that is almost opposite to what people time and again have said of you're actually just going to make a tough call. And so at a national level like that, where I see the national curriculum going, I'm very pessimistic. I think there's, look, I will work my guts out and help anyone to try and make reforms in this area because um, I think we can move at least the, the markers somewhat. But what I also see from speaking to leaders around the country is, and this is my both, my fear, like a, a greater fear, but also an opportunity, is that I see more discussion of the national curriculum falling apart than I've ever seen before. So I, I've, you hear system leaders, non-government sect, school sector leaders talking about breaking away from the Australian curriculum and they are talking about, like everyone has had their complaints over the years, There's, that's nothing new, but they are talking about breaking away in a way that I've never heard before. Now that can be just a, we're, no, we're gonna have our own, we're just not gonna, not gonna use it, it's not ridiculous, which, which I think could, be, could, could occur in the non-government sectors. But what I think is actually more likely is, is one of two things happening. And one is, one of these is what has been a change in the national agreement around the national curriculum is that states and territories can adopt and adapt the national curriculum. Adopt and adapt has never been defined. And if you think about that, it basically means we can adopt the national curriculums and adapt and or change what we want. So therefore, we have a national curriculum pretty much in name only, and we can adapt to see whatever we want, which means that we don't have breakaway curriculums, but we have we go back to our old thing of different states having their own curriculums, and we all pretend that we've adopted when we've actually got very, very different things. The other way I see it is that basically we see a massive shift in instructional supports or curriculum resources that pretty much replace the curriculum, right? So at the moment, we have teachers around and schools around the country interpreting the Australian curriculum and implementing teaching programs in schools. Systems could say, okay, we're not gonna rewrite our own curriculum, but we're gonna go really hard on providing world-class curriculum materials to schools and teachers. And in that way, you adopt what is best practice around the world that just may or may not coincide with the Australian curriculum. Now, those things, are, I, I think if that occurs, that's fantastic, right? If we get systems adopting world-class resources, providing these to schools, that's absolutely fantastic. The fear I have is that all of those things, that fragmentation can also mean that we can go into loopy, loopy territory where we basically just, you know, it's a free-for-all again on curriculum. And that could actually have some really bad consequences for certain parts of the system. So, you know, and which also means we would get greater inequality across Australia because any, the, any notions of sort of raising the bar on what's quality curriculum just becomes lost if it becomes a free-for-all again. So that's a very, very long answer. But, yeah, I, I was trying to think of the different things in my mind about where we're heading. Mm. 
Now, that's really helpful, Ben. So to summarize what I heard, you start off saying you're pessimistic about positive changes at the nation level because we have this consensus from the ground up approach, which means that then no one is in actually in a position to make the hard calls that are required in order to make the shift from what we have now to the kind of knowledge-based curriculum, an explicit knowledge-based curriculum that would likely lead to some of the gains that we've seen in places like Estonia and Portugal. So from there, you sketched out two scenarios. One scenario was around fragmentation. Uh, and, you know, these aren't mutually exclusive scenarios either. One was about fragmentation where people just progressively and systems progressively break away and say, well, you know, I don't really care anymore. I'm not going to buy into that. And that might be the independent sectors. It could be state, so on. Or slash and we could have organizations and or companies developing curriculum resources that are actually best practice from around the world that are then adopted. And your worry was that in this fragmentation, we could see a free-for-all that could end up with lots of loopy stuff. A couple of thoughts on that. Firstly, I find it interesting that you start that like to me, that's relatively like it seems like a sensible assumption about what might happen in future. To me, that's not one that I would feel super personally super pessimistic about because to me, it actually gives the freedom for many, many systems, many, many schools, many, many teachers to actually adopt best practice without the constraints of a curriculum that's potentially tying their hands at the moment. And also, I kind of I see a parallel with what's happened in the UK with their academies and trusts where they actually opened up the ability to start schools to anyone who was willing to write a 9 to 15 page document with a with a reasonable you know argument about why they'd be able to write a good one or why they'd be able to open a good one and out of that 100% saw plenty of loopy schools start and many of them fail and obviously lots of instructional casualties along the way which is a tragedy but also you saw a number of schools and and trusts start up which have now become some of the leaders of instruction and pedagogy in the UK and which are now forming the foundation of a much higher quality of education than that which we see in Australia. So whilst to me that forecast potentially is one of a a short-term bit of loopiness I see it as potentially one of a more organic evolution or development of a really robust approach that empowers schools and empowers teachers to use world's best uh, practice. What do you think? So yes and no. I definitely agree with what you're saying around the English example. And you could you'd also say the same about elements of the US. I think, as you said, around you could see some companies producing some great curriculum resources for every great company, there's six crap ones that, you know, have a free-for-all. And I'm probably introduced, so there's two things. One, from a research perspective, if you look about all the systems we talked about then, they are all around a high-quality centralised curriculum. We have already lost that in a way, but if we totally lose any chance of that happening, you know, I don't, I can't think of the international examples. Like you, you've highlighted some group, great things happening in England but we haven't seen real system shifts in England yet, right? I struggle to find those international examples where we get whole system shift without that strong central um, agreement. So, so that's that's the researcher in me. I probably have to also acknowledge a fair bit of bias here. I'm I'm a systems guy. I believe in a system approach, and that's probably why I I said at the start I'm really pessimistic because. What has happened in all this way? Like, I believe in the national curriculum. 
I, I think Australia should have the most incredible, wonderful national curriculum. I think that would be so important for the country. All the research says it would just address so much aspects around inequality. So when I say I'm pessimistic, it's probably also because I have this in, incredible disappointment inside that says we buggered this up. And I, and I don't say to point the finger at that, right? I'm not trying to highlight a particular person or blame the people who are in charge of a car and now or whatever it is. This is just one of those things where I think I have this personal thing of going, you know, I, I have spent my life trying to understand how we can improve education systems and part of the, and what I find difficult at a personal level, but also probably a research level is that, well, how do we have a systematic approach when we don't have this centralized curriculum that is really, really high quality? And in my head, I think I've got, like you, I sort of said, like this actually could offer incredible opportunities. You know, I, I have in my mind the plan that we could take forward to actually do some of the things that you've, you've talked about. I just think. My fear is that for, you know, every small system, every territory, every network of schools that we improve, six could decline. That, that, that would be my fear. Totally, I totally get you, Ben. Uh, to, to me, what you're saying there is it's, it's kind of like, well, it's a certainty thing because the examples we have of countries doing, doing a turnaround is a system level, but it's also a timeline thing. So this potential positive future that I just painted a picture of, it's kind of like in a couple of decades, right? You have all the crap in between and the companies do well and they do poorly and the orgs do well and they do poorly and eventually one emerges at start and then the results of the the people who use that organization's resource, resources rise and other people catch on. 20 years later, we, we might be using it but also we might not. Whereas if, if we do manage to successfully pull that system lever, it's like almost overnight or in as long as it takes to, you know, beg, borrow and steal resources from around the world to concoct the, a, a better version of the Aussie curriculum. Every kid in Australia is getting it straight away. So I totally get that and it, it makes so much sense. Coming back to that kind of bottom-up consensus structure and system that we use in Australia to, to construct our, our curriculum, is there not something that could be done to actually change the process by which the Australian curriculum is done? Like within the, the current constraints, I see why we can't come up with a curriculum change and pull that lever in the way lever in the way that you'd like us to but couldn't some politician come in and just completely disband the current structure and say actually we're going to have this one person called ben jensen or or someone else but probably ben jensen who's now going to be fully in charge of australian curriculum and we're going to do everything he says whenever he says it i mean look i'm always in favor of me having total rule and control over the world um (laughs) but no no and i think you've raised a good point of my pessimism stems from the current way of working and you've raised a really point where we can just change the current way of working. And I think you're 100% right. I've been saying this for a long time that, you know, there's, there's elements of the way we work of the consensus approach rather than saying, no, here's what the evidence says. And so there is that approach that we could just change and say, this is actually what the evidence says, this is what best practice says. Some people are not going to like it. That may mean that we need to change the structures so politicians can have cover and they're not blamed for every little aspect of it, which means setting up different organisations and so on. But I think there's also an issue which I've been thinking a lot about, and that is where I think I actually will point the finger at this and say that one of the things that ACARA has been woeful at is developing curriculum expertise across the country. Right? 
everyone you speak to in curriculum bodies, education departments, system leaders, everyone will say that there is just, we're struggling to hire curriculum experts. There's just not the people there that there once were and so on and so on. ACARA should be the place that cultivates where the best research is done, has the best international reputation. If you go and work there, you've got ACARA on your CV, you should get a job anywhere. It should be building huge numbers of people with this curriculum expertise. And they just never have. They've never been that organisation. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an incredible missed opportunity that ACARA is not not just a, you know, a place of incredible national research on curriculum and expertise, but, you know, they should be, world, they should be globe, globally recognised as such. And we're not, you know, ACARA should be producing 10, 20, 30 curriculum experts every few years, you know, where we're just increasing that knowledge and understanding of what quality curriculum is. And ACARA hasn't done that. And I think that's actually connected to the issue of, well, in ACARA, we just build a consensus. In ACARA, we're not the organisation that says, this is the best we are, this is what the curriculum is going to be. We build consensus between different ideologies, different thoughts and so on. And that has actually grown and when I think if you actually read a lot of the media and press releases coming out of ACARA more recently, I find it really worrying where they even present themselves as, as sort of almost like a hapless creature or unable to do this because their job is just to control the criticism of different ideologues. So if I write a media article that says we need a more knowledge explicit curriculum, there is a follow-up from ACARA in the media that says, oh, this is just an ideological perspective. We have to balance different perspectives. It's our job to say this, well, one ideologue says that, another ideologue says that, so we have to find the middle. Whereas ACARA should come out and say, no, this is the evidence and here's all the research why. And they should be really clear and loud vocal. It shouldn't be little idiots like me who say this is good and bad. Like I, I, I shouldn't be a loud voice on this. ACARA should be much louder and much more stronger and much more, um, <laughs> for lack of a better word, much more explicit about what is best practice, what is the research. We should be able to, they should be able to show us why we shouldn't be having a stupid maths war. ACARA should be saying, here's the Australian maths curriculum. Here's the top 20 maths curriculums around the world. Here's why Australia's is better. And that is something they actually could do within the current ways of working. That's not something that the states and territories have to agree or not agree on. That's just an approach that ACARA can or cannot take. And I think... I don't even necessarily think it's naturally the current administration of ACARA who have chosen to do this. This is just how ACARA has evolved over the, the years. But, but to me, I think that's, that's actually um, that's an issue which I think is really interesting and I've been thinking about a lot of I have so many system leaders tell me that I used to be able to go to universities, I used to be able to go within my department to actually speak to experts in you know English curriculum, mathematics curriculum and so on and so on and so on. And they just tell me that those people aren't there anymore. And to be honest, when those people aren't there anymore, that's part of the problem. Yeah. Who's going to do that hard work? Exactly. Yeah. No, that's really interesting, Ben. And I mean, something, something I've noticed in the last few years is that consensus is actually often used as a shield 
and a way of abdicating the responsibility of doing the hard thinking. A simple example of this was the other week. I was talking to someone who was talking about how they were developing a coaching program. They were a leader of, it was either a school or a system. I can't actually, I'm not hiding their identity because I actually can't remember who it was. But they said, in two weeks, we're going to have a meeting with all the staff and we're going to co-design the approach for XYZ. And, you know, getting staff input is absolutely crucial. In fact, I'm running a PD tomorrow morning where we get some staff input into things. But We've actually also already designed the program and the staff input is on top of the, the design that's already there. And, and, and that's really how quality work in my experience is done. Like you said, you have people who really know uh, the, the principles and who are applying the principles, but then put things out in case they've missed something or in case their perspective is a bit clouded or restricted based upon their context and who they managed to have ex- experience and contact with. So that's, yeah, great, great point, Ben, and, and thanks so much for highlighting that. Coming back to the idea of changing ways of working, what would it actually take to change the way of working in terms of how the curriculum is, is, is made in Australia? So I think if we take those different scenarios, you know, ACARA is still the national leader and if they went down that approach of saying, actually, we are going to be the research leaders in the country, we are going to do this work that we talked about, um, I think that's one. And part of that is also how we do curriculum reviews. So curriculum reviews need to start off with what's the research on good curriculum, what's the benchmarks, and so on. I won't go down because it's been a complaint I've made for years, but it's really important for us to think about this. And I will just ask this question. Why is it that in every curriculum review we've had at the federal and I think also the state level, we have not looked at what curriculum is taught in schools? Like, I I really encourage people just to think about that for a few minutes and say, how on earth can we have a proper review of the curriculum without understanding what curriculum is taught in classrooms? And we've had, and to me, that is a real signal of how poorly we run curriculum and curriculum policy in Australia. The idea that we basically just value opinion and pressure groups and stakeholders and therefore finding the consensus amongst those people rather than what kids are learning and how do we make that better. So I think there's part of that in terms of how we change that. The other one is... Well, we start to think about what is it going to look about, look like about how we do this in the, you know, with, with, without, if the national curriculum doesn't improve, therefore, how do we do this? We've been speaking to a bunch of people around the world to say, okay, how do you go about getting developed, first of all, developing high quality curriculum materials? If you look around the country at the moment, there are well over $100 million being allocated if you sort of pull the resources being spent in each state, which we never do, of course. But, you know, if you actually look at the amount of money, it's well over $100 million that is probably going to be allocated to the development of curriculum resources to better support teachers. And I think that's great on one level. My fear is that they will be low quality. A lot of the focus is on producing more and more and more and more resources and a focus on reducing teacher workload, which is good, but the focus needs to be on quality and what's best for curriculum, whatever. But if you take a fraction of that money 
And, and so therefore we've looked at, okay, so, so what do systems, what have other places done to produce high quality resources? What's their quality criteria? How do they evaluate what's good and bad? Um, what's the process they go? So who does it? How do they get it through? And, we, and there's no, um, you know, single method that is the, that is the tried and tested, but it's really interesting when you start to collect all these resources. A, it takes an awful long time, an awful lot of expertise. Um, it is definitely doable, but there's a lot of issues around. Well, there's not really a lot of issues. It's just going to take a whole lot of investment around producing quality resources and making them available to schools and schools and teachers. Is this that plan you before you said before you said oh and I've got a plan of how to do that? Are you talking about that plan right now? Yes, yes. So basically, when we look at different systems around the world and how they have supported. How they have got quality curriculum resources into schools. There's a development process. So how do you develop it? What's that cost? What's the timeline? Back of the envelope costing is around $60 million. We could do it for every subject, every year level. And we're talking the most comprehensive world-class curriculum resources we have ever seen in this country. And the back of the envelope costing is only from what other systems have spent doing it and trying to get sort of, a, a, you know, well, if they spend X and we spend X, we know they should be about the same. But the one thing around that is it takes an awful lot of expertise and an awful lot of time. And what I see increasingly from systems is, oh, we can do it really quickly. We don't need, you know, it's not going to take much expertise. You know, my classic that we see system after system saying, I got a few teachers in to do this, so therefore it must be good. Um, and you need teachers involved in the process, but that's not the only thing you need. And then the other thing which we have, which is, which is really interesting, is, is what's the criteria for what quality is? What's the criteria for quality resources? How do we take that in? What does that mean for knowledge explicit? What does that mean for the standard that we set? What does that mean for the resources and guidance we provide to teachers? And look, this is all work that is evolving and it's work we're doing. And I think there are others doing it as well, which is fantastic. So, some highlights for us that I think are really interesting to think about is, first of all, this is very, very doable. This is not a huge amount of money relative to how much money we spend in education. This is one of those things where we can do this and we can actually make it available to schools and teachers for free. And teachers are dying for it. And you saw me mention it at the, at the conference and everyone was sort of like, oh my God, imagine that happened. There is a huge opportunity here for philanthropic money this is actually one of those things that is much easier to do if you're not the government. It's harder for a government to come out and say, here are the books we need to teach in English. It's much easier if you're a non-government provider doing that. So you can just cop the criticism. It's not, no minister wants to have that fight. But the other thing is we have weird, some weird views about what a good curriculum resource must look like. So I, I hear a lot of people saying, oh, it can't be too long. It can only be a page or two. And no curriculum resource in the world that is considered high quality is a page or two. It's a curriculum resource. So you need to provide a lot of advice to teachers on, well, why are we teaching this? What's the advantages? You know, if student questioning, if a student asks this or the misconceptions, educators know all these things. This is the stuff they struggle with every day. It's about addressing all of those issues and why. And one final one, which I think is really interesting, we have a history of providing banks of resources. So... There's, you know, and teachers, the feedback from teachers is overwhelming. You know, teachers can access tens of thousands of lessons and unit plans. Like there's no doubt about quantity, but putting them together in a sequenced manner and identifying which of these is best and which of them work together best 
is actually a whole part of the job. So in terms of what is a quality curriculum resource, it's actually, well, what is a quality curriculum and therefore what's the support required to do that? And that highlights a particular thing about the knowledge explicit. If you look at quality curriculum, I think core knowledge is the most famous for this. It is how do you build knowledge, not just within a subject over years, but across subjects over years. And that work is almost absent in Australia. Some schools are doing it, but that thinking and that work is almost like if that, that work hasn't been done in, from what I can see in the Victorian, New South Wales or Australian curriculums. No one has done what's the knowledge build across subjects, say in primary school. So when, when a kid in Australia finishes primary school and they've learned the Victorian, New South Wales or Australian curriculums, I don't think anyone's done the, done the work to say, well, what's the knowledge that they've had the opportunity to learn? What's their, what's their entitlement? So there's a whole lot of issues which I think this raises and I've probably prattled on too long, but in going back to the question, there's massive opportunities to invest in these curriculum resources, but there's some big, big issues that we've also got to confront in doing it. How do I help, Ben, and how do, how do listeners help? Uh, it sounds like a great idea. Um, well, if you can send $60 million to Learning First and we'll go and do the work, that'll be great. Um, for those that don't have $60 million, Look, I, th- I think in all aspects of Australian education, the biggest thing that people can do to help is actually I, there's something in Australian education which is a real don't rock the boat mentality, which is a, you know, so, so for this podcast, I've come out and said the Australian curriculum is just not good enough. I said it's not good enough what we're doing. I will be chastised, I will be ostracised among certain communities for that. And I don't want to paint myself as a martyr. I am nothing but a lucky, you know, white guy. But there is something around we shouldn't say anything that's negative in Australian education. And I actually think we just have to come out and say, either the outcomes are not good enough, it's not good enough to have this amount of education and equality, it's not good enough to say that this curriculum is high quality, we actually have to demand something better. So I think it's actually a part of the mentality and the discussion we have about saying, you know, it doesn't have to be all positive, positive, positive. We can actually call out things that are not good enough um, around the country. I think I highlighted a few things. I know, or I, I presume actually a bunch of people who listen to your podcast are in the sort of, not only in education, obviously, but in education and research, um, and let me tell you, there is a massive demand and a massive hole for high-quality curriculum research in Australia. You know, what is a great maths curriculum? The, you know, let's go out and work this stuff out. And I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is, you know, I'm, you work with organisations that are pushing this forward at the school level. Um, we can all bring that together. And eventually, as I said, I think there will be more people who are looking at sort of really changing the curriculum landscape. And when that starts to emerge, the more that we can all jump on board and push this bandwagon, I think the better. Because as you said, there is something about the great opportunities that this fragmentation provides. Those opportunities can only be really capitalised or utilised if we can say, look, this, this is great, we've got to spread this across the country. So, you know, it's not just okay for a non-government sector or a diocese to do it. I think it is fantastic if they do, but I want to see that in Northern Territory schools, in WA schools and so on and so on. So I think there's something about that. And finally, if I can give one little plug, we're releasing some reports later this year that actually do, we spent 
a lot of time on this of actually going through the detail, comparing the Australian curriculums to other curriculums around the around the world. I will give you a heads up when we are publicly releasing those, but people should obviously feel free to read them and pass them on. That'll be my one plug for the whole podcast. That's great, Ben. And yeah, please make sure you do give us a heads up um, at the ERRR because I would love to love to spread the word about those reports. Really, really looking forward to them. Ben, what advice would you give to your first year researcher self? So I've, I've, I'm pretty, in some ways, really conservative about my research approach in that I like to be really understanding of an area before I crap on too much about it. So as an example, like coming from a non-education background, so, so when, I, when I took over the job at the Grattan Institute, if you actually look at the reports I wrote, I didn't talk about pedagogy I didn't talk about assessment practice because I felt that as a non-educator, I had only worked in education for about a decade, so I didn't feel as though I had enough there. I didn't talk about curriculum too much until I'd spent six plus years looking at these issues. And so I think that's a, I think that has its strengths and weaknesses. But I think one of the things that I would, if I can go back to my first year, is to basically have a greater commitment to go harder on some of these issues. I had a very systems approach, so I had a very wide, broad approach. A lot of things were of interest to me. And when you do a PhD, you get very narrow and that becomes frustrating and crappy and all the rest. But I think there is something around that first-year researcher of going really hard on the things that really matter and seeing that hole that you can fill. So for me, you know, we've seen a lot of great work. Um, that first year researcher is you want to make a career in education in Australia, you know, curriculum is going to be a ticket that everyone is going to hit. So I think there's something about that. And to go hard on the research. So that probably means for a first year researcher, pick an area, pick a learning area, pick a subject and go hard on that. Right. So it's not I'm a curriculum expert in generalized curriculum policy. Um, you've got idiots like me talking about that. But what you need is I am the expert on secondary school mathematics curriculum and I know everything about that and it's very, very hard to underestimate how valuable those people are because that's system leaders tell me we don't have enough, we can't find them. And as a first-year researcher, I was uh, dirt poor. So have, working on an area where I know I'm going to get paid and be able to get a job would also be helpful. <laughs> <laughs> Great advice, Ben. But I am glad that you stayed as a generalist because otherwise we wouldn't wouldn't be having this conversation today. <laughs> but it's a call to arms to uh, to a lots of lots of listeners out there who may be thinking about different areas they might like to explore in their own education research. Whose work should people follow, Ben, in terms of, I mean, this might be mailing lists, it might be might be Twitter. Where should people be going for good info on this? So first of all, I, I look I a bunch of things. You know, we've mentioned Edie Hirsch. Um, you've mentioned a bunch in your podcast previously, Natalie Wexler and so on and so on. There's the big, the big names like that. We've worked with David Steiner in the past. Um, at Johns Hopkins, I think Johns Hopkins is doing really, really – I encourage people to go to the Johns Hopkins University Education Institute for Education Policy website and have a look at their knowledge mapping that they have done it for knowledge for curriculums in the US. It's some of the most interesting stuff we've seen and we've tried to replicate a lot of their benchmarking work. I think it's really interesting to see 
how you can benchmark different curriculums and some of the difficulties and complexities of doing that. I think it's really important work that has informed us a lot. Some of the other ones I'd really focus on, look, I, I think it's really important that we all actually go and understand and get to see curriculums in different countries. So just go to the Alberta website and download the curriculum and have a read. It's probably not the most scintillating thing you'll do on a Saturday night to read curriculum materials, but it's actually, it's really good to have a look at just how different they are. Um, and I will just preface that with, I think I talked about my journey and what has taken me here. If I had have known this 20 years ago, I would have had a very, and I think much more productive career because it took me a long time to figure out just how different Australia's approach to curriculum and how different the Australian curriculum is to the curriculum in other countries. So, so that's one thing I do. And one is a bit left field as a generalist. I would encourage people to read The Checklist by Atul Gawande, who is a public health academic in the US um, and one of the leading ones in the country uh, around the world. It is, I think, one of the great arguments around change, but it also highlights how ridiculous some of our concerns are around curriculum guidance reducing the professional autonomy of teachers because that book shows how a checklist has basically improved the performance and outcomes of people in surgery. And I think it's a wonderful argument for change, but it also highlights how even things like checklists, which we don't normally think about in terms of these things, in terms of curriculum materials, but how they can make change as well. Ben, any last calls to action, things you'd like listeners to go away today and do? I I think I addressed it earlier. It's the demand better, but I really, the call to action, it's a simple one to do. If you're in a, if you're a researcher, if you're interested in this area, go and have a look at international curriculums just so you can see what's different. If you're in a school and you're a school leader, a teacher trying to think about, well, how do I do this? How do I implement, get change in my school? One way to start, because this is a really hard thing to do, one way to start is to, so if you're in a primary school, start creating a list of what are the books that kids in my school read from prep or kinder to grade six. And do the same for secondary school from year seven to 12. What are they, What does the typical kid read? Now in secondary school, it's going to get different with all the electives and so on and so on. But what do they read? Even if you want to do across English and so on, it is... I think a really tangible way to start down the road of what is the knowledge in the curriculum that we're teaching, right? Because a lot of the knowledge just comes in the choice of text that we provide. Now, we can do that for text or you can talk about textbooks in science or mathematics, whatever it may be. But even just starting in the humanities, English, social studies, whatever you want, and all the other subjects, what are the books that kids read? And then just ask yourselves, okay, what is the knowledge they gain from those books? More than likely, they will be reading some of the same books again, so you'll be able to correct some of that. But you'll also get a feeling for, okay, what are some of the areas where we're missing? And it's not just knowledge, but authors. Are they reading anything by an Indigenous author? Are they reading any? Are they reading 90% male authors? Are they reading main, do they read anything from an author from Africa or Asia? Or is it all just Australia, English, and the US? You can even just start down that and then start to say, okay, what are the big, 
when we think about the knowledge that we want kids to come out of primary school with, say, does that reflect the books that they're reading? It, because this whole push for knowledge-rich curriculum can be really, really complex and hard. But I think just from, you know, even just starting out at a school level with what books do kids read? Right? I think it's a really important one. And look, that's a, that's, a, that's a tough issue as it is. But I think it's interesting to me, I think every school should know this. I think every primary school, every secondary school should know that for a typical kid, here are the books that they read at the moment and it's something that they should be reviewing over and over again and thinking about in terms of the knowledge, the diversity, the variance, the, the variation or lack of it that we have. So, so to me, to me, that's just a, I often get asked by people in schools, what can we do? To me, that's a really tangible thing that I actually just think is important um, and is a step along the way rather than undergoing a big five, 10 year process. Ben Jensen, thank you so much for your time today. You have taken us on quite a journey. It's been a wide-ranging conversation. We started out in just the broad idea of, you know, what is a knowledge-rich curriculum? We looked at Chingos and Whitehurst's paper and the value of a quality curriculum over teacher expertise. You took us through those four fantastic examples of countries, you know, France and Finland who have gone from knowledge-based to skills-based and Estonia and Portugal who have gone the other way. And you highlighted the, the core difference and the core impact on equity of a knowledge-rich curriculum. And since then, we've had a very, very in-depth conversation about the current state of curriculum in Australia, and we've had a, a big exploration of what might be done to address it. It's been really stimulating, really interesting, and, and it's left me more hopeful than pessimistic, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to say, Ben. But above all, I'd really like to thank you for your bravery because you have Put yourself out on a limb both today and on a number of other occasions when you spoke in in fact on on most occasions that you speak i think you go out on a limb in this way and like you said we do have a bit of a challenge in australia with people not being willing to rock the boat and so i just really wanted to thank you above all else for being willing to rock the boat and say what needs to be said about uh, curriculum here in australia i I'm very confident this conversation will have wide-ranging ripple effects, uh, and I hope that's the case, and I, I commend you for your work that you're doing in this space. So thank you so much for that, Ben. Thanks, mate. You're very kind. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ERRR podcast. If you're keen to never miss a podcast, a blog post, or other exciting educational announcement, then jump onto ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe for my weekly summary of key takeaways on all things teaching and learning. That web address again is ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe. If you enjoyed this episode, then please share it with friends and colleagues. And if you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the ERRR podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on this episode or any other ERRR episode, I always welcome contact from listeners via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning.